Suffolk is a most beautiful place, England's most easterly county. From the breaking waves on the shingle of Alborough Beach to the rolling gallops of the Newmarket area, it is full of incredible views, fascinating people and amazing businesses. There are only three things you can do with money. You can spend it, you can give it away, or you can save it. This podcast looks at how these activities are carried out within Suffolk and the people behind them. From exciting, bold entrepreneurs to large employers who are household names. From neighbourhood projects to charities dealing with massive issues. From money-saving tips to explaining the world of investments. This is a podcast about Suffolk. This is a podcast about money. Welcome to Suffolk Money. We're now going to meet someone who describes himself as a college dropout. After a short time in an insurance broker's, he took a job in recruitment. And within three years, he had established his own business, specialising in a particular market sector at the age of only 22 years old. Five years on, his business continues to grow. He employs 10 people and turns over over £2 million. I want to welcome Milo Williams. Milo, good to speak to you today. Morning, Colin. Thanks for getting me on. Oh, that's okay. Oh, this is a fascinating story that someone who obviously sort of fought your way through education, perhaps didn't particularly enjoy it, has made something really quite amazing. So perhaps we can just explore how that all came about. Yeah, like many people, I would probably say in recruitment, it's an industry that I fell into, um, you know, school, you know, I managed to get, managed to squeeze myself out of having some good grades. So I wasn't sort of too bad, but it was never really, never really had a taste for it to sort of go into further education. I was pretty much forced to go into college from my mum. Can I just ask at that point, what were you studying at college? Cool. Um, on paper, I was um, studying business, psychology and sociology. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, more interestingly enough, the, the, the sector I liked least was um, the business. But yeah, I enjoyed psychology and sociology when I sort of went. But yeah, I, I was made to go practically by my mum and I didn't want to let her down. So yeah, it was sort of a conversation sort of six months into it where it was like, well, I can't leave college without having a job. And luckily my sister worked for an insurance broker's um, Swinton. And um, yeah, one conversation led to another, managed to get an interview, fell into insurance, which was sort of your household sales, car, home, travel insurance, as well as some sort of you know, bolt-ons there. And um, yeah, sort of took to it fairly well. So yeah. So what were the things that you found worked well within insurance? What did you enjoy uh, within that insurance broking side of work? Yeah, many things. I, I, I enjoyed the, the daily buzz because, you know, it was sales. Um, at that point, it really was, you know, get the product, sell it, do a deal, get on to the next one. And that environment and that office environment, I particularly sort of thrived upon. So I think, you know, like the general bits, you know, like the office banner and everything, but it was very, uh, you know, it was sort of no real talk for hours and everyone was really on the phone so it was a great environment for me to learn the basics of sales and what it takes to become good at your job I suppose. 
It sounds like it was only a little while after that, that whilst you were obviously enjoying it and being stimulated by certain aspects, there was an attraction to go into a slightly different arena. What, what was the appeal with recruitment and how did that change come about? Yeah, so I was at Swindon for about close to three years and um, in a very short space of time, I sort of found a knack for sales. Um, I think at that point they employed over a thousand employees and I managed to nationally get myself up to sort of top performer or final in the top three. So obviously being at quite a young age, I think it was like 18, 19 at the time, um, knew that sales was for me. There was a sort of a regulation change, commission sort of changed and there was other conversations happening with people outside of insurance as, as to sort of where I could take my career. And I found a um, agency which had a sort of a national um, focus and they were setting up an office in the east of England over in Bury Evans. And yeah, one of the directors had a conversation with, got on very well. Um, and it seemed very exciting. Obviously the uh, financial rewards is practically 90% of the reason why people get into recruitment after experiencing obviously good times at Swinton. I thought, well, I'll give it a go. Um, so yeah, it was like I said at this at the start of the um, interview, it was very much an industry that I fell into. It wasn't something that I was, you know, thought, well, right, okay, I'm going to go be a recruiter. I don't think um, many people do. They sort of get attracted by the financial rewards, and it's not until you actually get into it, until you actually realise the rewards in terms of how you can interact with people and character building. I would say is massive when it comes to recruitment. And, and was that particular role focused in one area of? recruitment to you know one part of the market or was it quite generalist no the, yeah they, they were a specialist so they were all, all they done was white collar professionals within the construction arena so i was targeting a lot of companies tier one contractors developers to place quantity surveyors estimators project managers that type of character um so yeah i was, I was there for a year enjoyed it um taught me everything I knew about recruitment because I didn't get any training from that point onwards. Um, so yeah, it was a fantastic experience. Just done a lot of traveling. The, the one part I probably missed, which is the reason why I didn't stay there for too long is like I described earlier is when I was in insurance, you had that daily buzz and that daily interaction. You could get in, make a deal and, you know, get on to the next one. Whereas with white collar, you know, you are moving professionals to make a big decision in their career and you know with that comes higher salaries and higher fees which in turn then makes the process a lot slower and um yeah I think I was just in hindsight sort of fairly young and um probably hadn't matured as a salesperson at that time but I spoke with someone locally in Ipswich who had an oil and gas agency um and it was just a really exciting role there and they spoke about the pace of the recruitment it was very fast paced which I think suited my passive aggressive sales technique if you want to call it that um started over the sort of the low millions they had exciting plans to sort of grow the business um and like i say i had a good year in recruitment so i had confidence in my own ability that a i could sell because of my experience at swinton and b i knew what i was doing so yeah went in there and um exciting role and look back on that with fondness so what then did drive the change to decide to start your own business at 22 years old yeah 22 so um when i joined the business that like i say that they're, they're sort of turning over low millions and i managed to um get myself up fairly high in the business and was pivotal in turning them into 
a business which was turning over in excess of 10, 10 million pounds. So yeah, I built all these various divisions for them. And at that point, I think the oil price was floating in and around sort of 150, $160 a barrel. And it was just a gun ho um, industry. So, you know, I thrived in that because it was 24 seven um, on a Sunday, the Middle Eastern market was open. So, you know, there was even deals there to be done on a Sunday. The evenings, you could be dealing with the American market. In the mornings, you could be dealing with the um, market in Far East Asia. So I was constantly on the ball and it fed my appetite to just work practically every minute and hour of the day, which was enjoyable. Um, the oil price suddenly sort of dropped down to $60, $50 a barrel. Redundancy started being made. There were conversations had, you know, should we go in this direction, that direction? And they sort of said, look, do you want to, you know, you've done well for us. Obviously my background was in construction, white collar recruitment. Did you want to set up a construction arm or a construction agency for us? And, you know, it was sort of said, sort of said well, you know, I've done fairly well for you. Whilst I've done well individually, it's, you know, it's one of those industries that, you know, it doesn't really matter whether or not they're bought off, you know, XYZ or Milo recruitment or Rubix or, you know, Ivy Offshore, it doesn't really matter. You know, it's all based on independent relationships. And that's how I felt at that time. So I thought, look, I'll go out there and do it by myself. And that's what led me to set up Rubix, which at that point was formed as Rubix Personnel. Um, but obviously we later rebranded onto Rubix m and &E. So the m and &E is an important aspect of that because again you chose when you started up not just to go for any generalist recruitment you focus on a very specific area yeah it, it certainly developed into that because um when the business was set up back in what october 2015 we set the business up as rubik's personnel and all i knew was oil and gas and construction i knew that the oil and gas market was on its knees and there wasn't much opportunity there hence the whole reason why i'd left the previous business but what i did know is that every construction company in the uk practically was crying out for a quality surveyor so it was a matter of mapping out the market speaking to you know going back to my roots in terms of speaking to as many construction companies contractors um developers as possible speaking to as many commercial managers and directors as possible and practically offering them um, recruitment for commercial services. So quality surveyors and estimators. Um, that was tough, but yeah, an enjoyable challenge um, because obviously, you know, you're setting up your own brand. You've got that own, you, you know, you've got that enthusiasm to start something and make it into something. And that's what I really thrived on. I think one of the key things, you know, when I left IV, yes, it was a, um, you know, I look back at that and thought, oh, you know, a lot of people would have said, oh, that, you know, that's a shame and been really disappointed. I actually enjoyed being on zero and starting again and having to prove myself. And it naturally evolved into, right, okay, placing quantity surveyors into site managers. Then it was sort of multi-traders. Then we started placing electricians and plumbers. I always knew that I wanted to have a specialist recruitment agency. Obviously, it's very tough to own the construction recruitment um, industry or a whole industry such as oil and gas or agricultural or drive or whatever it may be so um yeah once sort of done my research and found that do you know what there's actually not a lot of agencies out there which a do m and &E, and b if they do and they've got a prominent brand within the industry then it's mainly um sort of a you know one recruiter in a large larger larger um larger agency or one team in a larger agency and they're rubbing shoulders with someone that is doing generalist recruitment or healthcare or driving or 
you know, agricultural, whatever it may be. So there's not a lot of companies out there which have the brand. There's not many agencies which can say they're going to place a plumber on a building site or a gas engineer on a on a top tier energy framework and then place half a dozen people on a on an oil vessel in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. So how did you get those uh, opportunities, considering that you started effectively on your dining room table um, with with all of this clean sheet of paper, as it were? How did you get to then being tasked with seeking out people for these roles? How, how did you network to, to that degree? Because from the outsider, you know, five, six years on, that's an incredible difference. Yes, yeah, an interesting question. I think, you know, a lot of people have this um, sort of perception of recruitment, that, you know, you can be super strategic and I get that. Yeah, you know, I can, I can plan. I can do all of that. I can give my guys a plan, but I just don't think anything beats hard work. I know if I'm up at half five, six a.m., and I'm sat there till ten p.m., very few people are going to be doing that. I remember reading um, Mike Tyson's autobiography, and he, he went out at like three, four a.m. running because he knew that anyone else in the whole world that he was competing with, they weren't out running at that time. And stuff like that just sort of sticks in my head. And I think, well, okay, well, that's what you've got to do. That's what you've got to do. Um, and yeah, it hasn't failed for me yet. Um, in, in our office, you walk in, it's um, hard work beats talent every time. And if you touch enough bases, speak to enough people, then you, you will get there. And you've got to remain positive throughout that because, you, you know, you're getting three, four, five times as many no's as the average person as well. So that sounds to me as though the hard work also encapsulates not giving up when you're first turned back. Um, so, you know, keep revisiting, keep approaching, keep pushing, um, which sounds to me as though that's been very much part of your story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the key thing is actually adding value. It's a very tough industry recruitment. Um, you know, there's many sectors out there which requires totally different sort of skill sets to each sector. And ours is certainly one where you need to be working a lot harder than the, the, the rest to really get anywhere. And that's the, that's the only way I know to be successful, um, even though sort of, you know, we're still a long way from being where we want to be. But I think we've got to where we have just based on just pure hard work and hard graft. And, you know, when the door opens and you get that opportunity, you've got to make the most of it and make sure you can do what you say you're going to do. And, and as the business has grown are you still part of the sales team or have you gradually retreated from that and let others take on that aspect or is it still in your blood yeah no actually i'm in every day um so yeah i haven't um moved away from that at all you know i don't actually enjoy sitting on the sidelines i like to be i like to be amongst it and help people i think that's the one of my new traits that I actually in, enjoy more than anything now is that I don't actually enjoy my name being on top there. March, for example, in sort of our sales standards, everyone's doing exceptionally well. And there's not one person who we're in inverted characters having to carry. And sometimes in, in a sales environment, that's fine to do so. But it's a brilliant feeling for me. And it should be for them as well, that they're all achieving what they say they want to achieve. So that's, that's, that's my buzz is now to, you know, support them. And I do that in terms of going out there, getting the business, account managing it and assisting them to actually make the deal as well. So my role has changed, um, but 
yeah, I'm still in on a day-to-day basis and I certainly wouldn't be sitting on the sidelines. It's just, yeah, it would be a bit boring for me to remember. It sounds to me as though this is still seven days a week for you. Do you have any downtime? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, um, yeah, that is, you know, if you ask sort of personal people, like my friends or, you know, my other half, yeah, they, they would want me to probably have a little bit more downtime. But... I just don't I just don't enjoy sitting there and watching Netflix or anything like that. My mind just goes elsewhere. I think the only time I do switch off is when um Chelsea are on or you know, or I might be out with my friends. So uh, other other than that, yeah, just sort of see it as a missed opportunity if I'm sort of sat there doing stuff. So who stimulates you in the sense of um you've mentioned Mike Tyson, that sounds like um you know reading his biography was something that shaped how you work. Are there other people who are your role models for, from a business point of view? Um, that's a good question. Um, you know, I just take different things. Like, I don't know, some, someone might say something to me and it just sticks in my head. So I don't really, I don't think it matters whether or not you Mike Tyson or, you know, or you know, don't want to say sort of average show, do you know what I mean? But, you know, just a, a, anyone. Um, I've always been someone that, has wherever I've been looked at, you know, for example, if we went down to sort of um, start of my career when I was at Swinton, I looked at, right, okay, who's the best person in that office? Okay, need to be like him, need to be up there. Who's the best person in the company? What are they doing? Okay, need to be like them, be them, progress. And it was always that. So I always look around in my environment, whether it be, you know, we're quite lucky now in terms of social media and having an insight into some people's, lives and people particularly who have been successful so yeah I'm all, I, I'm, I've got to be honest I'm not a massive reader but I do watch a sort of a, a lot of YouTube and um, read up on sort of um, reports of you know businesses I've got a personal interest in looking at how the economy is and what other businesses doing and you know whether it be sort of stocks and shares and stuff like that that's you know mm something that's always interested me in sort of current affairs in the in the um in the world as well so 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 on that subject obviously you know the last year has been pretty tough for a lot of businesses um how has it been first of all within recruitment yeah i think like everyone it was really scary this time last year but it you know it was met with a lot of confidence that we'll be okay you know, when I was in insurance and the regulation changed, well, the commission changed with that. So I had my, had the rug pulled from beneath my feet in that, you know, walked, walked into um, an oil and gas sector, done really well. But the oil price changed and the market crashed. So, you know, you, you sort of, ex, you sort of, you don't expect, obviously you don't expect what's happened. I mean, it's unprecedented, it's crazy. Um, but that was always key in terms of having a good business structure. I mean, we, we've managed to keep practically all our key members of staff um that you know there wasn't i don't think there's anyone prior to 2020 when it, when it came out that we don't have now um apart from one person so we've proven that we've got a good foundation we've got a really good set of people and going into march yeah like i say it was a scary time because no one really knew what was happening and it's gone on for a lot longer than than the majority have said you know, I think a lot of people in the industry were sort of saying, you know, give it six months. As long as you've got six months tucked away, you'll be fine. Um, again, we've sort of proven that we've come out the other end. And not only that, we, you know, in the second lockdown, we actually had someone starting the business. 
we had someone starting Christmas. Um, so we increased our headcount and we're on a recruitment drive at the moment. You know, we're being very aware of what's happening. So this isn't, you know, going gun high because things are going well at the moment. It's you know, all very sort of planned around the economy and what's actually happening in our office. But what's happening in our office is, is fantastic. We're re really busy. Um, you know, we've got, I've got, I'm very privileged to have a great set of people. Um, and yes, um, okay so far, yeah. And were there any opportunities that you yourself found that the last 12 months have presented? So yes, you've said how you've coped with the, some of those uh, problems, some of those issues that arose, but what about opportunities that, that might have arisen? Yeah, so um, it was very sort of early on in the first lockdown, um, actually, you know, March, and it was sort of first few weeks touching base with clients, trying to support our client base as best as what we can um, with sort of what their plans are with recruitment. Um, but yeah, a large part of my network prior to actually rebranding to Rubik's Emily was I used to support a um, sort of a small pool of clients within the supply chain and logistics sector. And yeah, one conversation led to another and I got offered a load of sort of PPE and thought, well, actually this could, um, you know, fulfill my day as it's getting quite bland at the moment. Um, yeah, and <laughs> so this was what, March last year or something? Yeah. March, so, April. Yeah. 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 Back into March. And um, yeah, so we set, so, so I set up um, Chainbox Global after a, a very brief conversation with myself. It was, it was like, I, I remember I, I had a call um, and yeah, I managed to help facilitate a transaction for a large amount of PPE. And I thought this is actually quite fun. Um, obviously, you, you know, doing, doing a bit of good and commercially it's, um, good so that ticks that ticks the boxes so yeah i had a conversation with um one of my colleagues um at rubik's at the time I said look you know i might do this and then yeah i was up till about like three o'clock in the morning i think i sent him a um a logo that i hand drawn at like 3am he like woke up was like what, what are you doing so um yeah just and then i set set it up round with it and you know, it was, I learned a few things that I'd learned with Rubik's is that I don't want to set us up as like a PPE business. I wanted to set us up as essentially a middleman that can go out there and go do and go do anything or go get anything. Um, so yeah, we set up as like a sort of like a customs brokerage, if you want to call it that. Um, but yeah, again, that was um, very interesting and fun. A lot of long hours again, you know, I mean, yeah, very similar to setting up in, in the um, in the dining room. This was this was in my lounge with a you know a couple of officers, and again, you know, I'll go back to the staff that I've got. Obviously, the person I brought into the business, um, you know, we work we work very very closely together for that period of time. His name's Sam, and um, yeah, we got really close and worked really hard over that period of time, and basically just again took a business from nothing into something. That then, you know, when Rubik's came about, it then sort of continued sort of working really hard in Rubik's. I had obviously chain box and Rubik's to balance. And um, yeah, we've done quite a few business with um, sort of wholesalers, um, you know, the NHS, trusts, um, construction firms. We've recently signed up to have an agreement with um, a group of bars, well, pubs and um, restaurants. Um, but obviously they're you know, not, not in use at the moment. But um, yeah, it, it has gone really well. And 
the, the reason why we sort of, as I say, why I sort of branded it up as like a middleman that can go out and go get anything. I mean, to give you a few examples, we were pricing up Christmas trees for a national company and, um, you know, um, mitigating deals for e-scooters. And yeah, it was, yeah, or even um, sort of like um, pet carrier things or whatever it is. So yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's fun because yeah, you're able to freestyle it and go into whatever direction you want. Um, funny enough, we have just um, sort of had in conversations with a few people at the moment about them potentially coming into the business and actually expanding that and giving that some more focus into this year. Because a lot of these people that um, obviously stepped into PPE, like myself, have moved into an area whereby, you know, I came from recruitment, but a lot of these people that I'm selling these PPE to, they may be, you know, an electrical wholesaler or construction wholesaler or you know, their main business prior to the pandemic actually wasn't selling PPE. So mm. that's what's led me to have actually a quite a good network in terms of loads of other sectors. And um, yes, could be quite exciting to move into. And, and it's just so, yeah. so just on that subject, what are your, how, how far ahead do you look with your business? Are you, do you make plans for five years from now, three years, 10 years, a year? You know, or, or do you just go with it and just say, well, whatever it's going to be is going to be. But it sounds to me as though in your mind, you've got some idea of both maybe for Chainbox and for um, Rubik's that you've got some idea of the direction of travel you want to have. Yeah, they're obviously both in two totally separate stages of their lifespan. Um, yeah. With Chainbox, it was, you know, a matter of, um, yeah, see, see how far you can take it. Um, you know, Rubik's is my baby, always will be. So I think, you know, with Chainbox is very sort of short term, where can you take it and where are the opportunities? I now understand where the opportunities are, which is why we're now speaking to people about potentially growing that side of things and giving that some more focus and energy to really push that arena. Um, but yeah, with Rubik's, there's a, there's a, there's a longer plan there. But um, what is, what was taught me is no plan. You know, you can write down a five-year, three-year, two-year, one-year plan. They don't go to plan because you know you either do, but you know it's very rare you're doing different. You're either on track and you're excelling, or you're not. So it's um, yeah, it, it is tough to plan. Um, but I think as long as you stay focused on a goal, whether that be a daily goal, weekly goal monthly quarterly yearly you need a goal and that's what that's what has always been the case for me and my staff really well what other objectives do you have obviously there's the growing the business and so on but you know do you are there causes that you try to support within the business are there activities that you as a team try to fulfill yeah i think um the business has always been sort of a very sort of um social business work hard play hard environment um obviously in this climate it's been um, tough to celebrate what we have. So only so many Zoom quizzes you can have, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is. Um, having said that, we've um, we've got um, Molly who heads up all our HR and operations as well, and yeah, she's um, kindly put together a charity event for the month of March, whereby we'll be um, supporting a, um, a couple of charities. Um, throughout March and doing 10,000 steps a day. So um, yeah, I need to get my walking shoes on, but yeah, we're going to do that. Well, so, you know, it's good again, you know, it brings everyone together. You know, you call it, it's for a good cause as well. So um, yeah, we're always keen, particularly obviously for 
good causes, whether that be, you know, local charities. Yeah, it's important to, you know, not only me, but everyone in the business as well. And obviously everyone's been affected in various ways over the past mm. months. I think whilst there's, you know, loads of positives that we've spoken about, um, you know, it's always good to understand that actually, you know, we're in a pretty privileged position. We have been affected, of course we have, but mm. it's not like we've been totally shut down, you know, such as like the re- retail sectors and- Absolutely. and aviation. So we're very, you know, it's, it's good to know that you are privileged in that respect and to, um, yeah, be thankful for that. Yeah, and you've obviously made an absolutely incredible success of, of not just one business, but a second business as well, which is absolutely stunning. But just just one sort of final thing, really, is is just a, a few thoughts about Suffolk. You're you're Suffolk based. You're um, you're Suffolk educated. You you know come through Suffolk. You employ Suffolk people. What is there a difference about Suffolk? Does it is there a benefit in being in Suffolk compared to perhaps other places that you could be around the country? Yeah, I think um, yes and no. Obviously, you know, it's um, always that sort of. Um, hometown mentality when people come you know don't come from your hometown like, oh yeah that's brilliant and then people that live there think oh no it's actually not that brilliant but um yeah we're back based in Ipswich um you know it's whilst we have a you know a very sort of Suffolk feel about us you know we cover nationally cover internationally mm. and um you know I don't think it really matters whether or not it's what you're based in Ipswich or you know London or wherever it may be so yeah we're always sort of key on bringing in local people I do think one of them is border Essex, so he tries to step into the Essex style, particularly um, <laughs> when, he's, when he's with his mate. So yeah, but we have to remind him that he isn't. He does live in an IP postcode. But right. Okay. That's just about okay, isn't it? That's a, that's yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant, Milo. It's been fascinating just hearing about your immense success in business and the lessons that you've learned. Uh, and, and applied them and changed things as you've gone along. It's just incredible. So um, it's been brilliant to hear about what you've been doing and I wish you every success for the future. Thanks, Colin. Appreciate it. Still on a long road to go yet to um, claim to be successful, but yeah, it's going so far so good. So thank you to Milo for such a great opportunity to talk with him and understand something about his journey in business and how he's carved out for himself this uh, entrepreneurial spirit and this desire to succeed. And uh, perhaps the most refreshing part of it all was just as we got towards the end there and just to uh, hear him say that he still had so much more to do. So we wish Milo well in his uh, entrepreneurial journey. But uh, one thing that we thought we also ought to bring to your attention is, as we approach the end of the tax year, that it's time to look at ISAs. Uh, So individual savings accounts Uh, might be something that's on your radar, might be something that you're aware of, but perhaps don't understand how they work and the benefits that they can give. So I sat down with uh, two of my colleagues, Gary and Stuart, and had a chat about ISAs, and that's what you're going to hear now. So, Stuart, let's get us kicked off. What is an ISA? So, an ISA is an individual savings account that we all have if we're a UK resident. Um, and we get a £20,000 allowance if you term it into a general uh, ISA. Um, and this is something we get each tax year that we can um, save up to 
put in as little as we want um, or put up to the maximum 20,000. And that's your spouse as well or partner. So uh, we've learned there what ISAs are and who can use them. So, Gary, let's talk general ISAs. What are the options available to someone? So two general ISAs, uh, cash uh, ISA, where you just invest in cash, interest rate, whether that be fixed or variable for a period of time, and your stocks and shares ISA. So investing it into the stock market, uh, which obviously carries a slightly higher risk um, than, than your cash ISAs. Excellent stuff. So, um, Stuart, who can have an ISA? Well, anyone who's a UK resident. So that's you and I, um, spouses, partners, um, and actually even children um, can can have a a junior ISA. And there are some, uh, a slightly lower allowance that's £9,000, but it's a brilliant way for parents or even grandparents to save for their children, whether it be future education costs, university, or even maybe a deposit on a property. So what happens? Where do they, so we say we're saving for a child within a junior right, so when can they access that, Stuart? Well, they can access that at any point from 18. Um, they could just um, could fund maybe a new car then at that point, or can just let it roll over. It automatically turns into a normal ISA, as it would for you and I as an, as an adult. Um, but I say it's a great way of building up a savings pot for children. And like, well, as we've just discussed already, it can be cash based or it can be stocks and shares based or it can be a combination of the two. Very good. So all the same options are available for what we just referred to as a general ISA are available for junior ISAs as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, it has to be taken out in the name of one of the parent or guardian. Um, but that's a simple um, admin task. And then to say ownership of that goes through to the to the child when they're 18. But it can effectively, as you say, be funded by a grandparent if if needs be. Yes, absolutely. And it's really quite popular um, for saving, a great way of saving. The allowance is actually £9,000 a year, um, but that's that's only recently gone up to that level. It was fairly a modest sum um, below £5,000 for, for, for a number of years. Uh, and prior to that, some, some um, may have already heard the child trust funds, which were the old predecessor that uh, the Labour government introduced an incentive to start saving for your children. So there may be a few of those that are actually now starting to mature or actually wanting or to ch- transfer into a junior ISA. So they can be moved into junior ISAs if someone's had a child trust fund in the early years? Yes, they can. And most providers will will take them on. Um, uh, so, yes, it's a, it's a really straightforward process, a couple of forms to fill uh, just to make sure that the allowance, um, the tax benefits of free of income tax and capital gains tax is not lost. So that's really just because there are greater options available within the junior ISA uh, range rather than in the child trust funds, which is pretty limited in terms of the options that were available. Yes, the investment options were, were limited and a, a number of providers, the uptake wasn't as, as great, I think, as the government were hoping at the time. And slowly but surely, um, the allowances have gone up and uh, junior ISAs provided by a number of companies has, has, has widened. So the options on where you can put the money has widened also. Yeah, very good. So let's move on to uh, lifetime ISAs, which is the, the third of our four different uh, ISA options. Uh, Gary, uh, can you talk us through lifetime ISAs in terms of just the who, who are they available to as a starting point? So they're available to, to anyone uh, aged 18 to 39 can o- open those. Um, 
and it gives you a, a boost towards either buying your first property if you, you've not been on the, the housing ladder before, then they can provide a boost to your retirement income from age 60. So they work in a slightly different way, don't they? They do, because you get a bonus or a boost for, for the, the, the savings you add to um, the, the lifetime ISA. Um, you can only put in uh, up to £4,000 a year into a lifetime ISA, but then it gets a £1,000 uh, boost or 25% bonus from the government, um, which you can only get up to the age of 50. So whilst you can open one between the ages of 18 and 39, you can only contribute between 18 and 50 and you can take them from the age of 60 onwards if they haven't been used for the house purchase it, it, yeah just yes that's true Stuart what else can you tell us about lifetime ISAs is there anything else there that we need to be aware of well I think I think there are uh, I mean let's not forget the reason why they were introduced to give people a bit of a, uh, a step up onto the housing market which was running away and still is running away for a lot of people and this was seen as a as a sort of you know um, an olive branch if you like I think by the government to give another option give another boost for those who are trying to to do and save a deposit for a prop their first house um, and as I say whilst there they are some people may have known helped to buy ISAs uh, a number of years ago um, and uh, it's now I think um, well, it's permanently changed to lifetime ISAs, um, and hopefully it will it'll, it'll give some clarity for people longer term that this is a, a, a name and a type of ISA that's here to stay. So, of course, one of the other things that you know, we've talked about, how it's helpful for people who are buying their first property, but it's also that it's because of its simplicity, there is some idea that, that perhaps that will be the way that pensions become so you get your bonus as soon as the money's gone in then when you draw it out whatever it's worth is what it's worth and you know you don't have any tax to pay or anything along those lines so it, it's simple isn't it and it, and who knows we might find that gets developed more in the future absolutely i mean there is talk we about simplifying ISAs and pensions and aligning and um, aligning the tax benefits. And that would be certainly one way of, of the government achieving that in, in what has been a really difficult year financially and, and no doubt will continue to be so for, for a while. So just talk us through this. So there is this other fourth option, which we won't spend a lot of time on, another form of ISA. So can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it, what I would say is it's quite a specialist area, fairly new. Um, it's turned the innovative finance ISA um, with, and what that simply means is it's peer-to-peer -peer lending so of course there are risks involved in peer-to-peer peer -peer le peer -peer lending it is relatively new um, and, and something I, I would um, anyone that's considering it is, is, is to really speak to an expert that can walk you through it and make sure that it's the right type of ISA before you you go ahead. Yeah we just all decided to be quiet there you say innovative uh, there, so well done. You got it's, the, the fact you then stumbled over peer is what made, <laughs> made me laugh. Anyway, then we move on. Gary, what's the situation about ISAs? How safe and secure are they? So they're, they're, they form the part of the um, eligible deposits under the Financial Services Compensation Scheme, where deposits are protected up to your £85,000 per financial institution. So there is protection there. Obviously, if you end up accumulating quite a large um, 
ISA then if you've got that in one ISA wrapper with one provider, anything over 85,000 isn't covered, but there's nothing for stopping you having two, three ISAs that you can split that across. I think it's also just worth pointing out that, yeah, whilst that's true for the FSCS protection, the compensation scheme protection, we shouldn't forget that if someone's investing their ISA, the bigger risk is actually the, how the underlying investment funds perform, um, isn't it? I mean, they could still fall in value and you're not protected by the FSCS at that point. Um, it's Absolutely. down to the investment so returns. That down to your, your normal risk profile, if, if you, you know, and you're investing in the stock market, value can go up as well as down and that's 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 you know the case across most of the or if all of the ISA products except for the cash one which is not invested absolutely yeah exactly right um so then what's the uh there's many people who ask that question what's better is it better to have a pension or is it better to have an ISA how would you respond to that question Stuart to start with well I'm going to sit on the fence Colin on this one in as much as there are pros and cons with with both um and they can complement one another um, pensions, we talked about the tax relief, um, the benefits of that. Um, it's locked away until uh, at earliest 55 currently, but that's going to extend to 57 and no doubt beyond and aligned to the to 10 years gap between that and the state pension age. Um, whereas versus ISAs uh, are accessible. So if you need to draw the money out, um, then you can access that money at any point. Just noting that, of course, if you're investing into stocks and shares, it should be a medium to long-term mm. investment and just bear that in mind. So always keep some, some ready money, accessible money set aside. Um, so there are benefits to both and it's, it can be, a, they, they can complement one another as part of either retirement planning or just general savings. Uh, would you come off the fence, Gary? Do you have preference pensions or ISAs? Uh, I, I will stay on the fence with Stuart. <laughs> yeah, I, it's I, getting I crowded much. there. Yeah, it's getting crowded. It's, it's very much a, a, a tool that complements each other. I think if you're looking, you know, if you can plan it early enough ahead, then actually both of them together work really well, especially with your 25% tax free lump sum from your pension um, that you, you have the remaining 75% is, is taxable. If you're actually then utilising your, your, your ISAs, everything from your ISA is, is tax-free. So utilising that along with your personal allowance year on year, actually you can have quite a, a good tax-efficient solution for, for income in retirement. Yeah, that's really helpful. Gentlemen, thank you so much. That's been uh, great to just sort of walk through a bit of a whistle-stop tour of what um, is a fascinating subject and there's so many things that we could discuss. Um, I, I would just stress we're recording this in the spring of 2021. We're conscious that there is a budget in the near future so um, uh, it's very important that you just check that the things that we're recording now are accurate and uh, still in place at the time when you're looking to take action but above everything else we'd say it's just really important to take independent financial advice and where appropriate take tax advice as well. So that's everything that you need to know about ISAs. Well, as we approach the end of the tax year, we thought that it would be wise to do a full tax year end special. So that is what we'll be doing next week. So we'll be talking to a 
very uh, senior accountant about what is a tax year, what is the end of the tax year, why is it when it is, and what are the key things that we need to be thinking about. So as we uh, come into March, that would be an ideal time to be planning that. So there'll be something on the end of the tax year, there'll be something on what you need to do if you have a pension, and uh, what things you need to consider again as you approach the end of the tax year. So that's next time, so do tune in. Uh, as always, do give us some feedback, go onto our Facebook page, which is Suffolk Money, and uh, find us there, leave us some comments, give us some feedback, and uh, do the same on your podcast facility of choice, whichever one you're using. If you can give us some feedback through there as well, we'd love to receive that. Please do uh, recommend us to your friends so that they can get some benefit from the stories that we're bringing. And also, if you've got any news items that you can keep us informed about, then we'd love to hear those as well. So we hope that we'll see you next time on Suffolk Money.